0: Hello, and welcome to Episode 6 of Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Programme podcast, where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy.
1: And I'm Yuka Koshino, Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy at the IISS.
0: Today we are in for something of a Japan treat with our two guests, both of whom are distinguished Japan experts, Dr. Sheila Smith and Peter Landers. Sheila is a senior fellow for Asia Pacific Studies at the US-based Council on Foreign Relations, CFR, where she conducts research on Japanese politics and foreign policy. Uh, She teaches as an adjunct professor at the Asian Studies Department of Georgetown University and is the author of no less than three books relating to Japan. They are Japan Rearmed, the Politics of Military Power, Intimate Rivals, Japanese Domestic Politics and a Rising China, and Japan's New Politics and the US-Japan Alliance.
1: We're also joined by Peter Landers, Tokyo Bureau Chief at The Wall Street Journal since 2014. His career as a journalist at the Wall Street Journal began in 1999 when he landed in Japan as a Tokyo correspondent. Between 2002 and 2014, he was based in the U.S. as the health reporter, then the page one staff editor, then the deputy national editor and assistant bureau chief of the Washington Bureau. Alongside his English language reporting, Peter appears occasionally on Japanese news programs such as Shinjoho 7 Days Newscaster as a commentator.
0: So, straight to the Japanese general election, which happened at the end of October. I, I think it was the 49th lower house election and the eighth lower house election this century, no less. So, great excitement for Japan related cephalogists. The ruling LDP won by a, a rather a larger margin, I think, than uh, many were forecasting. What were the key takeaways for you from this year's general election? Perhaps uh, start with you first, Peter.
2: The electorate had a chance to to vote for the opposition party. And at one point there was even speculation that there could be a change in government. That was when Prime Minister Suga was at his lowest point and the pandemic was at its worst point, with, More than 25,000 new cases reported a day at the peak. But uh, ultimately, calming down of the pandemic and the fact that by election day, it really had receded uh, more than 95, 98%. The vaccination rate at that point had had risen well above uh, two thirds of the population. I think really calmed the nation down, led them uh, perhaps somewhat reluctantly, but nonetheless uh, overwhelmingly to uh, support Liberal Democratic Party. Once again, I say overwhelmingly because they did win 261 uh, seats
0: out of 465, a clear majority. You say reluctantly, that sort of piqued my interest. Why do you think they did so well despite people being reluctant? I think
2: the new prime minister, Kishida, certainly played a role there in presenting a fresh face. And some of the voters that I talked to uh, in reporting on the campaign even those who are sympathetic to the ldp were i would say a little fed up or frustrated you might say by the relatively minor scandals i would say under prime minister abe and then under prime minister suga i couldn't call them uh, major by the standards of some of what we've seen in other countries but nonetheless there was a so-called moritomo case where there was a suspicion that a, a supporter of prime minister abe uh, got favorable terms on a land deal and several other uh, scandals or affairs of that nature, I think, led people, rightly or wrongly, to think that the government was not necessarily uh, fighting for them. A- and they did uh, hear the opposition criticism on some of these. But Prime Minister uh, Kishida presented a fresh face. Uh, he was not associated with most of these uh, problems. And I think that uh, gave them at least enough confidence to say, let's uh, let's stick with the LDP, which we know quite well. It's a, it's
0: a secure government. So, Sheila, how did the election stack up for you?
3: I think it's interesting to put the LDP leadership race together with the lower house election as we think about what's going on in Japanese politics today. So, you know, our first surprise was when Prime Minister Suga began to make noises as if he was running for the leadership of his party, right, for for his own three-year term, not the last year of Mr. Abe's. But then he backed out. And I think what was all of a sudden was on display were some of the internal dynamics within the LDP, the Conservative Party. I think that was actually where most of so the political action was, and that was in September. Suga himself, you know, I think really wanted to, to run. And but what he did is he lost the support of the two big factional leaders, Mr. Aso uh, and his large faction, and also Prime Minister Abe, who is, at that time wasn't the head of the faction, but is now the head uh, of another large faction, the Hosoda faction. The internal reshifting of the balance of power inside the LDP was fascinating. We had a very energized race then of four candidates. And again, the winner, Mr. Kishida, was not the sexy candidate, so to speak. Um, everybody had their eyes on Taro, who had uh, was immensely popular beyond the LDP's uh, traditional voters. Very popular with the rank and file in terms of his electability and what he would do for the party. So I think that was interesting. Kono did not come out of it ahead. And, and I won't get into the you know nitty gritty of the selection process. But in that process, another candidate popped up that was a surprise, which is Takaichi Sanai. And she was backed by Prime Minister Abe. And she had a very forthright agenda, not only more nationalist revisionist agenda, um, but also a defense agenda that really set the tone then, uh, and we'll talk more about it, I'm sure, but it set the tone for the campaign platform that the LDP crafted going into the lower house. But I agree with Peter. It was not a hugely wild election. I think a lot of us felt the structural dynamics were really not in place for the opposition to take over, but there was interest uh, in the coalition led by the Constitutional Democratic Party of Japan, including their partnership with the Japan Communist Party. The coalition that, that really start, tried to capitalize on the LDP's weakness in the polls and, and some of the corruption scandals that Peter mentioned, they really couldn't pull it off in the end. And that was disappointing. But I think it's it's an interesting moment to be looking also at generational change in Japan. And you certainly saw that within the LDP. Younger Diet members were really pushing hard to say our party leadership has to be more transparent. We have to be more technocratic, if you will, more policy oriented. We can't be locked in to this old fashioned uh, factional system anymore. And so Kishida Fumio, the prime minister, he pulled on that thread a little bit during the race and has really kind of put himself forward as the man who's going to change the way the LDP governs itself. So not only do you have a new leader in Japan, but you also have at least the idea that the LDP has some significant changes ahead of it.
0: You mentioned internal dynamics, which when we're talking about the LDP, sort of endlessly fascinating Byzantine, things going on there. Do you think that given all the generational change you talked about, the sort of rise of Takaichi and so on, do you think Kishida is now sort of safe in power given the, the strong result that he got?
3: Ironically, even though Peter and I didn't see the lower house races being all that exciting, it was good for Kishida. And it was good for Kishida in two ways. One, a lot of people thought the LDP was going to lose a lot more seats than it actually lost. It lost 15 from what it went into the race with. And But the party itself was basically saying we could lose up to 50 or 60 seats. So there was a little bit of uncertainty about how they were going to come out the other end of that election. And so they came out very strong in the parliament. They can run the chairs of the, par- of the committees in the parliament, et cetera. But I think the other piece is Kishida came out stronger inside the party. And it's interesting to me now, you've got Kishida with his small faction of 50 plus, right, around 50-ish. And then you've got Aso lined up with him. And now the Hosoda faction is the largest faction inside the party. And you've got Abe on that side. So what had been the Abe-Aso factional juggernaut that underpinned the Abe cabinets, right, for almost eight years. They are now, they're not antagonistic, but they are slightly balancing inside the party. So she's got a lot more room. And there's some personnel changes that helped him a lot.
1: So Sheila, I think you mentioned some of the changes that was highlighted in the election, such as the generational shift within the LDP. And you also mentioned the opposition party was not structured to win in this lower house election. But Peter, do you see any changes in the results of this election? And also, do you think the opposition's party will be better placed to win in the upcoming elections?
2: I think it's difficult for opposition parties to win. I did follow some of the commentary. I'm not a political scientist, but I think some political scientists would say in sort of circular reasoning that the LDP always wins election because they, they always win. <laughs> it doesn't sound like very much logic, but you know people vote for perhaps their local LDP lawmaker knowing that that person can deliver the goods and they can deliver the goods because the LDP has been in power so long. So there's a certain circularity to it that tends to perpetuate itself unless there is just some overwhelming reason, such as in 2009, the global financial crisis, or the 1993 corruption scandals that were much bigger than the ones we're seeing right now, that would just overturn that perpetuation of the cycle. But for the moment, I don't see great opportunity for the opposition to, to take power. There was a sense that it didn't work out to ally with the Japan Communist Party, this time and they coordinated in a number of districts agreed to support each other's candidates in in quite a few cases i think more than uh, boy how many dozens of cases more than 100 i believe and uh, that, that didn't really seem to appeal to voters it was successful in certain limited districts but uh, overall uh, it really didn't uh, it didn't help in fact it probably hurt and so we're right uh, in the middle of a of choosing a new leader of the constitutional democratic party and i think that person will have to really re Address the issue of how to form a coalition of opposition parties uh, after after that's over.
0: Throughout the campaign, Ishida promoted uh, his new capitalism, which prioritizes distribution as as well as growth. And we just had the sort of mother of all Japanese uh, fiscal packages, I think around about six hundred billion dollars. Two questions from that. Do we yet know what this new capitalism actually means? That's my first question. The second one is, given that Japan has had a lot of stimulus packages since the bubble burst, a great amount of stimulus packages, which haven't actually worked, uh, do you think this one will actually work? Is is this one actually different from the others?
2: I think it is somewhat different. And there's a very interesting debate uh, going on right now between people who are Colleagues in the government, the uh, the vice minister of finance, maybe a month or two ago, wrote an article in the monthly magazine Bungay Shunju suggesting that Japan's debt was like a iceberg looming in front of the Titanic. And he said, you, you know, Japan may feel like there's nothing to bar it from you know, smoothly traveling the high seas, but in reality, there's this giant iceberg of debt uh, awaiting uh, a short distance away, and any moment now, the the ship of state could crash into this iceberg like the titanic and uh, japan would collapse because of its high debt. Now there is another point of view that uh, has been expressed actually also in Bungai Shinju by Ms. Takaichi who we discussed before the uh, candidate for uh, prime minister a uh, president of the LDP and prime minister who now is the head of the policy uh, council at the at the LDP uh, and she and also more recently an official in the in METI the Ministry of Economy Trade and Industry has expressed, I would say, a a view influenced by modern monetary theory, MMT, uh, although it predates MMT to some extent, that says uh, basically the government uh, cannot default on its debt and the amount of debt really isn't uh, important so long as uh, Japan doesn't suffer from inflation, Uh, that that is the real measure of some kind of excess and the excess would not be an excess of debt, it would be an excess of spending, too much spending chasing too few goods and that could cause inflation that would be a problem they say but right now Japan doesn't have any inflation and you kind of see the influence of this uh, new thinking in the stimulus package that prime minister Kishida has put forth uh, it includes cash handouts to most families uh, of 100,000 yen per child so if you've got you know three kids that's a uh, that's 300,000 yen in cash and it's being financed entirely by government borrowing, which uh, MMT would say is not really a big deal, again, so long as it doesn't cause inflation, uh, they, they're really not troubled by the idea of handing out lots of cash to lots of people. In fact, they believe it's wise economic policy to do so, and that was uh, that goes a little bit beyond where the LDP was, I think, 25 years ago in in formulating uh, stimulus packages, and
0: uh, and so this one, you know, could be more effective. We'll have to see how much is actually spent. Remember when I first started forecasting numbers for Japan in my previous job back in the in the late nineties, and I forecast that um, Japanese government to GDP debt would be about one hundred and seventy percent of of GDP. The whole system crashed. They said no, that couldn't possibly be the case that you could have that high debt to GDP ratio. And of course, now it's up at what two hundred and sixty, and still relatively stable. Certainly more stable than it looks. An interesting new cabinet position is the Minister of Economic Security whose portfolio includes supply chain security, critical infrastructure, protecting critical technologies and countering economic coercion. Why do you think the new Kishida administration is is so focused on uh, economic security? And what do you think we can expect from the new role?
3: This is an interesting dimension of the Kishida cabinet and how they're approaching not only the way in which they try to rejuvenate the post-corona economy, but also this question of how they're looking at their own strategy, um, think, looking forward for their economic future. And I think this, this, this position is interesting for two reasons. One, Mr. Kobayashi, who is the Minister of Economic Security, doesn't really have a place to sit bureaucratically in Japan. So he's been given this ministerial cabinet role, but without a bureau underpinning him. But he is going to be tied into the National Security Secretariat, which is an institution that Mr. Abe created Under the Prime Minister's office, which is populated by bureaucrats from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Defense, and the National Police Agency. The idea for an economic security ministry came out of this larger strategic thought process that Japan begun under Mr. Abe, and it will be tied into that broader process. Now, they've talked about a couple of things in terms of what they're defining as economic security. There's going to be a variety of uh, new initiatives considered, but the most obvious one that they started, and they were already announced uh, last week, was this idea of of supply chain resilience. So that's the first step. How does Japan think about coming out of the pandemic particularly, but more broadly, how does Japan think about maintaining and diversifying its supply chain, but also making sure it has critical technologies such as semiconductors? So you see the conversation between Japan and Taiwan on locating a semiconductor factory in, in Japan. The other piece is going to be, I think, the, the identification of critical industries to support and to oversee, and there's two, that's two pieces that I'm not quite sure yet how they're going to work this through. And that is the oversight part is to have a much stronger regulatory look at corporate technology transfers uh, to other to other countries. Of course, it's going to be China, but in certain technologies will not be allowed. They'll be on a list, right? So that's one idea. And the other, of course, is to come together in innovation that this is also feeding in, as you know, to the conversation on the Indo-Pacific, how to collaborate beyond Japan with other countries such as the United States, Australia, India, and perhaps even the Europeans going forward. So this is a fairly ambitious portfolio. There, There is going to be legislation, I think, created and drafted and presented to the Diet next spring. So we should get more texture on what it is this new economic security position is all about, but more importantly, how it fits into Japan's larger strategy uh, by the spring.
0: You said that um, Kobashi doesn't have a place to, to sort of to sit. Uh, Japan's bureaucracy is famously stovepiped, balkanized, uh, fragmented with each one sort of protecting its own interests. Do you think he can actually get stuff done given all the institutional hurdles?
3: Well, I think it's really something that METI, of course, is going to be deeply engaged in. The bureaucratic politics question going forward is, is this really METI's extension into the the national strategic institutions under the prime minister, or or it's a formalization of that, um, or is it going to actually develop into something more broadly? I, I don't know yet, but certainly you're going to see the bureaucratic push and pull But it is the economic instruments that are being brought in. And of course, that would be METI as well as the Ministry of Finance and others as well. Under the surface here, some discussion in Tokyo, what we have in the United States, the Magnitsky Act, which would be a sanctions process for actors and corporations that violate either UN sanctions or independently developed Japanese sanctions. And that's a set of instruments Japan legally at the moment has not really developed so this could also be incorporated, which would bring in the Ministry of Justice as well. So you'd have a much more complex bureaucratic setting if Japan really went, uh, you know, full body onto these variety of instruments to that would come under the rubric of economic security.
2: On the Magnitsky Act, I interviewed uh, Mr. Kishida in early September after Prime Minister Suga dropped out of the race, and and he was at that time the leading candidate to to win, and he ultimately did win. And I asked him about the the Magnitsky Act and I, he didn't seem to know what it was. I don't blame him for that. You know, there's a million things going on and it's not widely reported on in Japan. I mentioned to him that Mr. Nakatani, the former defense minister, was proposing a Japanese version of the Magnitsky Act. And so I thought maybe it's just not his priority. And then he named Mr. Nakatani to be uh, his special advisor on, on human rights uh, issues. And they are, in fact, uh, seriously looking now, according to both the Prime Minister Kishida and his advisor, Mr. Mr. Nakatani, uh, they are looking at uh, formulating a Japanese version of the law. So it's really something that would have been inconceivable, I think, a decade or two decades ago in Japan. It just wasn't uh, into that kind of human rights uh, diplomacy.
1: Interesting. So Prime Minister Kishida and his party have announced that they will revise the national security strategy, the national defense program guidelines, and the medium-term defense program. On the procurement strategy, it has been reported, it has been discussed that economic security that we were just talking about is one of the key focus areas for this new national security strategy. But also more on the defense side, following recent advancements of um, North Korea's ballistic missile capabilities, Japan's National Security Council discussed acquiring enemy-based attack capabilities. Do you think that Prime Minister Kishida have the support from both the public and from his government to develop these capabilities? And what else might be included in this new national security strategy?
3: this will be a big deal. And this is where I'm watching, obviously, the Kishida cabinet. I think these things, the three things you mentioned, the national security strategy, the national defense program guidelines, which is the 10-year defense plan, and the five-year procurement plan that accompanies it, these will be tackled after the upper house election next summer. And so I think you're going to see the highlight of the diet is economic security legislation in the spring, and of course, the corona recovery. But the security side that we've seen come out of the LDP conversation, that those big ticket things are going to be in the fall next year, which is going to be interesting to watch. You know, there's a supplementary budget that the Kishida cabinet has just put forward for the MOD, which is roughly about $7 billion, which is not an insignificant number for a country whose defense budget is somewhere around uh, maybe $58 billion now, depending on how you translate yen into dollars. So this is a significant boost. So I think you're going to see the Kishida cabinet continue to demonstrate its willingness to raise defense. Spending the politics of that will be interesting, you guys. This will have to coalesce with the economic recovery because there will be people who want to spend that government budget on other things. But I think you you put your finger on what I think is going to be very tricky, which is the what we think of this term conventional strike capability. I think the Japanese government has decided, and Kishida himself, when he decided to run for the head of the party, put himself firmly in the pro box of Japan needs this strike capability. So this is a conversation, as you know, that's been around for a while, but the idea is Japan will develop some kind of conventional capability that goes beyond offshore defenses and will be able to reach out to bases in enemy territory, so to speak. So be that North Korea, be it China. And so that's a, that's obviously a ballistic missile capability is is largely the way many people have been thinking about it. But it could be a different platform. So I don't necessarily know how they're going to balance that act, but it will draw considerable public questions and obviously opposition. I don't think they're going to need legislation for it because I think they're going to rationalize it in the the basic overall mission of the defense of Japan. Uh, and as you know, that is not something that would challenge a constitutional interpretation of Article 9, but you will have a very heavy opportunity in the diet to deliberate on that, and the government will have to put its rationale forward to the public via that debate. And so I, Kishida-san is not you know, Mr. Abe. He is not somebody who has you know, cut his teeth, so to speak, with hawkish defense policy. He's known to be on the more dovish side of Japan's foreign policy and and disarmament agenda. So it'll be interesting to watch how this all pulls together next fall.
1: Peter, do you have any other comments around what might be included in the national security strategy? The 2% defense hike, um, 2% of the GDP as Japan's defense budget was also mentioned in, in the manifesto for LDP. Do you think the recent election results showed that the public supports that hike?
2: I don't think it, it does really. And it was interesting to see how the language in the LDP's platform got a little exaggerated and simplified when translated overseas. It, it simply says that they will keep in mind the targets set by some NATO allies in Europe of 2% or more of GDP for defense spending. So, you know, keep in mind is, is far short of a promise to actually achieve that. Uh, But some people uh, took it that way and said, "Okay, uh, Prime Minister Kishida is pledged to double defense spending to 2 percent of GDP. He hasn't pledged that. uh, And I I think it would be it would be quite difficult. It'll be up to him, I think, to to define how much uh, progress he wants to make towards that number or whether he even considers that number a target in any way or just sort of threw it out there without. Intending to to necessarily achieve it, uh, and I think the public, as before, is not really ready and eager to have these these difficult discussions about you know strike capability against another country like China. It, it didn't come up a lot in the election. Candidates were asked about it; they would talk about it. But I went to a number of speeches by parties on you know on, on all sides of the spectrum, and it wasn't really discussed. Uh, neither the ruling party made a, a case that this is what we need is a lot more defense spending, nor did the opposition parties make the case that it's not what we need, (laughs) that we're already spending too much or something. Uh, It just wasn't there. And so when Prime Minister Abe in 2015 tried to push through a significant change to defense policy, it did spark protests because I think people, no matter how much he had tried to prepare them, they were really not prepared and they were surprised and some people were very angry and upset. That is a a tension point for Prime Minister Keish how hard to push some of these
0: more aggressive and forward-looking defence policies. On to foreign policy now, particularly China, which obviously is in the news every day, everywhere. There's an interesting move by Hayashi Yoshimasa from the upper house to the lower house at the election, and then his appointment as as foreign minister. Can you tell us a bit about Hayashi uh, and perhaps what you think his appointment means for uh, Japanese diplomacy more broadly? Hayashi
3: is very well known here in Washington. He uh, was an assistant, both in the congressional representative and then to a U.S. Senator. So he has worked on Capitol Hill in both of our houses of our legislature. And he helped create the legislation that created the Mansfield Foundation, which actually exchanges government officials between the United States and Japan to learn about each other's policymaking system. Yoshi Hayashi-san is, is well, well known and very well and highly respected here, uh, but he has been in the upper house. He comes from Yamaguchi-ken, so the same place that Mr. Abe comes from and his younger brother, Mr. Kishi. And so there's a long rivalry between the, the two families in terms of political power, both locally and obviously on the national stage. Hayashi's father was finance minister, so he comes from a very long line of accomplished LDP leaders. And he has made in this election the transition that many people have been hoping for, which is to go from the upper house to becoming a lower house representative. And in the Japanese system, it's much like the British system. The lower house is where the power seats are. He is now in line potentially to become prime minister, having made that switch. So that's him. He's an interesting person. He's got portfolios in defense, in agriculture. In finance, he's a a well-rounded, policy-oriented politician and a pretty powerful contender, I think, for leadership for Japan. But his position as foreign minister now is interesting because he is also the head of the Japan-China Parliamentary League which, as you know, is, is the, the conversational conduit between the CCP in, in Beijing and the LDP mostly in uh, Japan. But other members, uh, other parties are also participating in that. So he was sort of at the beginning described as being pro-China by the more conservative right inside the party. Kishida, in his decision to appoint him as foreign minister, counterbalanced him, I think, with Mr. again who we have already discussed, who is now the human rights advisor in the Kishida cabinet. Um, but Hayashi is interesting. I watched the or I read the readouts. He just had a telephone conversation with Foreign Minister Wang Yi. And this is going to be a very difficult balancing act for Japan because of course, Xi Jinping was supposed to come to Japan on a state visit in April of 2020, uh, and that was postponed. He's not in danger of coming now, of course, because he hasn't left the country. But it is next year, the 50th anniversary of the Japan-China relationship, which usually would mean a lot of celebratory kind of diplomacy to to hearken back to the positive outcomes of normalization in the 1970s. So Wang Yi brought this up and said, we should be celebrating the Japan-China relationship. And the Chinese readout is we told the Japanese, right, to pay attention to their neighbors, not to get too involved in America's, not belligerence, but, you know, America's strategy. The Japanese readout was from the foreign ministry was Mr. Foreign Minister Hayashi reminded China of Japanese sovereignty in the Senkakus and and mentioned the human rights issues in Xinjiang and Hong Kong and uh, noted their concern about instability in the Taiwan Strait. So on both sides, you've got the, the rhetoric coming out of the meeting shows you a little bit where the two countries are right now in terms of their diplomatic difficulties, right? They are not at crosshairs like the United States and China are so much, but they are sort of circling each other, I think, a little bit to see how the diplomatic relationship is going to evolve going forward.
0: What sort of change do you think we can expect between Motegi and, and Hayashi?
3: Motegi is now securely in his political seat over as secretary general of the LDP. Motegi is somebody that a lot of people outside the country don't normally understand, also has prime ministerial ambitions and is much in the same way Hayashi is very technocratically policy savvy. I don't think you're going to find a huge ideological difference between the two. They are both of a generation that is very focused on policy. They're both well-respected within the party for their intellect, their ability to wrangle with complex issues. Hayashi has networks because of his connections with the Parliamentarians League. He knows the Beijing side, the faces of the people and the networks on the Chinese side coming up. He also knows all of us over here in Washington and is very well-respected. So I think more than motegi hayashi can use those networks and use those connections effectively but i think the baseline of japanese foreign policy as you know is going to be this relationship with china is very difficult and the defense and security needs of japan are directly related to chinese behavior and especially we haven't talked about it but on the taiwan issue Uh, This is going to be a very difficult issue for Tokyo and for Hayashi, but for Kishida also to straddle because there's some real tensions rising there across the straits. And Washington wants Japan to be in the game, so to speak, a little bit more in crafting a kind of coalitional response on Taiwan.
1: Maybe a question to Peter. From day one, Prime Minister Kishida committed to continuing the free and open Indo-Pacific vision that uh, former Prime Minister Abe has uh, launched back in 2016 and was was continued by former Prime Minister Suga as well. But when the news of the resignation of Prime Minister Suga was announced, the U.S. was concerned that there would be a return to this revolving door politics, meaning of a one-year prime minister with some inconsistencies in in foreign policy in the past. How did the partners such as U.S. and new emerging coalition partners like the Quad members reacted uh, to the election of Prime Minister Kishida?
2: I think there, there was a probably a general feeling of relief that Japan won't have uh, an immediate change of government and that there is a, a prospect, uh, thanks to his solid victory, that the prime minister, Kishida, could stay in power for another three years or four years until the next uh, lower house election, perhaps, or beyond. There's no immediate uh, change in sight. And, and that was a, a problem for several periods in the post-war period. Most recently, 2006 through 2012, when we had a prime minister every year. On the one hand, you know, in some ways, I feel like the Kishida government is a return to the good old days, of like the 1970s. Uh, and and hearing, hearing Sheila talk about the factional politics that have kind of taken a, a more prominent role recently and the balance of the factions, and, and the question being asked does the prime minister enjoy? Uh, the support of a majority of the factions and it, uh, and so on. These are questions that didn't come up so often under Prime Minister Abe. People talked about Ikkyo, the one strength or the one center of power at the uh, at the Prime Minister's residence and everything else was kind of subordinate to the Prime Minister, uh, both in the party and in the government. Kishida government feels more like the ones that we used to have in the 1990s or 1970s before my time. It's more of a balance of power, more of a consensus oriented system where uh, certain power brokers, like uh, Abe or Asō, still have a voice. They're not the the preeminent voice, but they still have a voice. In policy in personnel uh, so in some sense we've uh, returned to those days i think nobody in the ldp wants to return to the days when the prime minister changed every year or, or two one reason that the prime minister did change every couple of years in those days was because the factional politics were always changing some old guy who's out of power changes his mind about who should be in power now and and everything becomes unstable and there's a change in governments the dissatisfaction with that type of arrangement was one reason why we had stronger leaders such as Koizumi and Abe. It's always a pendulum but people get dissatisfied because there's one uh, overarching leader who doesn't give uh, a chance for others to speak up and is thought to be dictatorial or overbearing. And so now we're back to the, to the old system. But what we what people in the LDP don't want to go back to, again, is, is the, the frequent changes. They want to have a, a solid leader who can stay around for three years, five years, six years, and, and be a reliable counterpart for uh, allies, especially the US,
0: but also throughout the world. If I may just jump in there, what about Abe? He's, I think, as Sheila said, he's, he's in charge of the, the faction, our biggest faction. He's obviously there, sort of lurking in the background, still, still important. I heard the other day that about 30% of LDP MPs were elected under him, so that must mean something. Is, is Abe still a force to be reckoned with?
2: I can tell you there's still, I live near him and and uh, there's still a police guard that's, you know, stationed uh, on the street that leads to his his house. It seems like 24 hours a day we pass by there and my wife was saying, why is there still a police van there where where the staff can go back and forth? And I said, well, he's a former prime minister. He's still a really important guy. And there's, you know, probably sadly does face more threats to his security because he is so well known and, and still perhaps so powerful. I, I think that's a great question. He ultimately did support Kishida in the in the vote, I believe, uh, and his, his faction is a, a, a basis of support for the current government, but it's not 100 percent secure. And does he want to play that role of kingmaker who kind of has his whim from time to time and, and, and says, well, OK, I've had enough of this one. Let's let's try another. I don't I don't know. I'd like to ask him that question. And there's also the question of his health. He seems to be better, you know, which is, of course, very glad to see him. In good health. Those are, those are unanswered questions, I would say.
3: I suspect he's going to have a point of view on various things more than from time to time. He's going to be in the mix and will have to be somebody that Kishida thinks about very carefully as he moves forward. Personnel is one place where I think you're going to see Mr. Abe's uh, fingerprints, and it may not just be in terms of next prime ministers but also in suggestions like Mr. Amari, the former secretary general, who surprisingly, shockingly lost his single member district seat right in this election. He was very close to Mr. Abe and Mr. Asso. So there's a lot of personnel picks that will be throughout the government that Mr. Abe is going to have his eye on. And of course, it's, it, it, you know, it goes without saying, he supported the candidacy of Takaichi Sanai in the leadership race. We often think of him when he was prime minister, is Abe the pragmatist. That was the language, The idea, Abe the ideologue versus Abe the pragmatist. And as, for, as prime minister, he was often seen as compromising in ways, because of his conservative credentials, in ways that a more liberal politician couldn't. Um, I think we're back to seeing Mr. Abe the politician. And so I think we're going to see more of the ideologically driven Abe, and it may not be completely realized agenda, but issues such as constitutional revision, Yasukuni shrine visits, there's a whole list of things where he and many people uh, in the party have strong points of view. And so he's not bound now by this prime ministerial role. He can go back to being Mr. Abe the politician. And I think that's where we're going to see him, I think, and his influence also be pretty important.
0: So, Abe Unchained.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, unfortunately, we are approaching an end to this stimulating discussion, so we would like to go on to our Japan memo questions. Do you have any book recommendations for listeners who wish to understand Japan?
2: I, I would name two. One of them is, uh, it's not a book about Japan, but uh, is uh, Stephanie Kelton's book about MMT and uh, modern monetary theory. I was influenced by it, uh, not persuaded by all of her arguments, especially in the latter half of the book where she talks about things like uh, you know, universal job promise. Uh, those are some policies that kind of go beyond uh, pure economics or macroeconomic theory. But the first part of the book where she talks about macroeconomic theory. It's not really a, a leftist ideological point. It's more just a different perspective on on the economy that I think is valuable to acquaint yourself with, even if you ultimately take the side of the finance uh, ministry and, and the vice minister who says that Japan has way too much debt uh, and is in danger of, of hitting an iceberg. Even if you uh, take that position, which is certainly a legitimate position, perhaps the still the majority one, it's good to be acquainted with the other uh, perspective uh, on what debt really is, and, and and when it's important, and when and when when it's too big, when it's not, and uh, and under what conditions it needs to be uh, trimmed. So, I would recommend uh, Stephanie Kelton's uh, book. I think it's called the, "The Deficit Myth." It's a little bit misleading title, but it's really an introduction to to MMT. And a second book, if I may, uh, uh, in in light of the recent uh, imperial marriage uh, by uh, Princess Mako marrying Kei Kumuro, there's a book called "The Commoner," written by John Burnham Schwartz. I think it's from 2009 and it's a case of life imitating art because this is a this is a novel but it's based on on the actual Japanese imperial family and it does uh, feature a, a princess who uh, has trouble uh, managing her life under the glare of uh, of the media and and the glare of other family members. And I, I can't give away the ending, but let's just say that uh, <laughs> it is uh, when I saw that uh, Princess Mako was moving to New York City uh, to be with her new husband, uh, with her new husband, and and, and planning to live there uh, permanently, it seems. I did feel that life was imitating art.
1: Sheila, do you have any book recommendations? One is
3: on Japanese politics, which I think is, uh, you know, again, for the political scientists who are listening, who really Uh, want to understand the internal dynamics the best book recently is by a, a political scientist daniel smith who's at columbia it's dynasties and democracies and it's a comparative look at inherited political power so political families why are there so many candidates or politicians in Japan who come from these dynasties, these political dynasties. And it compares with Europe and other democracies as well. So it's a nice comparative framing. The other book I love, and I this is, I think it was 2018, is an edited volume by Yoichi Funabashi and uh, John Eikenberry at, at Princeton. And the title is The Crisis of Liberal Internationalism, Japan and the World Order. And it's an edited volume. And in it, you've got the kind of who's who of the, the coming generation of scholars of japan both japanese and american and uh in some cases european but it takes you through this question of japan's stake in the international order and what japan has been and cannot and will not be doing about it. So it's a it's a very interesting deep dive, but it's a, a pretty varied set of readings and a, a, a wonderful group of scholars. You know, for security folks, because this is IISS, I thought I should have some security recommendations. There's two new books out on Japanese intelligence, and that's not something we think about very often. So this is new scholarship. The first one was by Richard Samuels at MIT, who is a very well-established uh, Japan scholar and uh, security expert right and that is called special duty it's in a history of the Japanese intelligence community so pre-war into post-war, this kind of structural evolution. And there's a newer book that I'm just reviewing now, which I really like by Brad Williams. Similarly, the Japanese Foreign Intelligence and Grand Strategy is the name of that book, from the Cold War to the Abe. So he's more contemporary, looking at the institutional use of intelligence and the increasing use of intelligence by the Japanese state in its foreign policy.
0: Well, you've just both dramatically expanded my Christmas uh, book wish list now. So (laughs) thank you for that. Our second Japan memo question is, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan?
2: As a bureau chief, I'm editing a lot of stories, and I I think they see translated quotes. This is kind of a very specific journalistic thing, but anyway, bear with me awkwardly translated quotes by Japanese people and, and think that they're trying to be sort of cryptic or offering uh, sort of Zen riddles, obtuse or obscure phrasing. And the reality is they're, they're not intending to, to be obscure in any way. They're speaking completely normally and intending to speak completely normally and straightforwardly to their audience. But somehow when it goes through the process of translation, it, it's, it sounds a little bit riddling. And I think that does lead in some cases to misunderstanding about uh, you know what the speakers are really intending to to say as an editor and as a as a writer when I'm translating myself I try to translate the speaker as if they're speaking like uh, I mean I'm tra- we're writing for an American audience so I'm translating into American English if they are speaking in colloquial Japanese I try to translate into colloquial American English which you know what an American would say if they were in that situation and using you know intending to say that thing there's a whole field of translation studies which is not what this podcast is about but People can misunderstand Japan because they are seeing so much through, through the lens of translation. Sometimes journalism is a, is a form of translation. Uh, it, it's our, our duty as translators, both literal translators and also sort of figurative translators of translating what, what is happening in Japan uh, for a global audience to do so as, as faithfully and accurately, but also as sort of colloquially uh, as possible to avoid those kinds of misunderstandings.
0: I think you're right, we, we could have a whole another podcast on translation and, uh, alone, <laughs> but but actually a really um, important point, particularly given that you know the misunderstandings that can arise uh, quite easily. And Sheila, what do people get wrong about Japan?
3: So I think there's a tendency, I'm not sure that it's wrong or right, but there's a tendency when people look at Japan to think that it is completely static, unchanging or it is about to go off the deep end. I mean, there's a kind of weird duality that people have when they, and it's largely because the scholarship or our ability to get under the surface in Japan has been a little bit limited. And I think it's changing now within this next generation of scholars like Yuka, uh, who are helping us see under the covers in a much better way. And obviously, journalists like Peter, who are on the ground, you know, translating this moment to moment for us. For example, in my world, when I talk about security policy, it's either Japan is pacifist or Japan is militarist. There's a tendency to kind of label Japan in these kind of dichotomies, right? And you can marshal evidence for either depiction in the security realm, but the reality is it's neither. It has a particular political history. It has dynamics that are, are about its security environment. It has its relationship with the United States. The complexity of what drives Japanese security policy, It's people are, would like to just not look at the complexity and stick it in a box. <laughs> and it's either this way or it's that way. Um, and so even within the Japan field, you're always having this debate about, yes, but... Yes, but they're pacifist. Oh no, yes, but they're about to go off the deep end and become militarist again. So there's that kind of di- the way of looking at Japan for me that is it's puzzling in some ways because it sort of fixes Japan in a spot, whether it's a static temporal spot or it's a static cultural spot. And Japan is a fantastically fascinating dynamic society. Uh, yes, it's facing challenges, aging society, demographic trans- transformations, difficult security environment, all these complex policies, right, that have to be crafted. And yet we're still kind of trapped in this, it's this way or it's that way kind of thinking. So I I don't know if it's right or wrong, but it's curious to me that we can't see Japan just as Japan is, facing some interesting conundrums that we all should understand and better appreciate as we attempt to work with Japan and the Japanese people going forward.
1: Thank you, Sheila and Peter. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Cheer program and the S on our website.
0: We also hope to connect with you on Twitter where we're active in sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find us at Robert Allen Ward, at Yuka Koshino, at Sheila Smith CFR, and at Landers WSJ.
1: Thanks again, and see you next time.